Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word speaks your will. It teaches us about who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And also shows us today how we are to live as your people. So Lord, we pray that you would do that work in us this morning. Lord, you know uh, the baggage and the things that we bring to church. Lord, you know all that's happening in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would speak into them, that you'll speak into us, that you would shape us into people that you want us to be, people of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, there haven't been uh, many days in my lifetime so uh, far like March 2020. That was a time when it felt like the world that we knew it had been flipped on its head. And while it wasn't a war, famine, or a natural disaster, COVID-19, I think, brought dark days into our society. Whether it be fear, panic, spread of the virus, cases and deaths, empty shopping centres, businesses going to a standstill, and much, much more. I'll never forget in March 2020 being on holidays all the way in Japan and hearing ScoMo announce to all Aussie citizens to come home as soon as possible. And at many points during the last two years, many of us have felt uh, that here we go again. It's all over. Who knows what's happening next kind of a feeling. Whether it be August 2020 when those two Logan girls came illegally through the border from Melbourne, or in January, April, June 2021, more lockdowns and things like that. July and September last year, when the virus spread through schools in our area and mask wearing uh, really came in at that time. Or a couple months ago in December 2021, and the big uptick in cases since then, hitting over 20,000 cases per day in January. Well, we might not feel it right now, but during the thick of it in the past two years, especially as the lockdowns happened and as cases and deaths jumped, I think it really felt like dark days. The curveballs that kept coming week after week, month after month, that here we go again feeling coming back. And while today it kind of feels like it's almost over right now, I think part of us is like, who knows? Who knows what could happen next round the corner? Well, in the first century and in the early church, there are not many darker days than the beginning of Acts chapter 12. It begins with King Herod in the spotlight, and you might remember Herod uh, in the time of Jesus, Herod the Great, uh, a puppet king of Rome who tried to murder baby Jesus. Well, this is Herod's, Herod the Great's grandson. It's Herod Agrippa I. And this kid, he grew up in Rome. He played tag with Gaius and Claudius, who became Roman emperors uh, during this time, in God's word. Uh, Herod Agrippa, like uh, his granddad, was a bloodthirsty ruler. He was a puppet king also of Rome. And these puppet kings, they were only set in troublesome regions, regions where there was unsettlement and uh, division and riots and things like that. 
And Herod was this king over Judea, and his role was to keep the peace, to quash all of the uprisings at all costs. And his eyes lock in on these Christians in chapter 12, verse 1, if you have a look. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. You see, these were dark days in the early church. Herod was pursuing and persecuting Christians. He realized, how does he keep the peace? How does he keep these people, the Jews, happy and not rioting or protesting or things like that? Well, he thinks, well, maybe I should persecute the Christians and they'll be happy and on my side. And for Herod, it was more about politics than anything. He's probably tortured and killed believers already. It's implied in verse 1. But now he kills James, this apostle, the brother of John, one of the three close apostles in Jesus' inner circle. He's the first apostle, in fact, to be killed. And because his plan worked and the Jews loved it and lapped it up, Herod goes for target number two. He arrests Peter, the next apostle, and he's wanting to execute Peter also. But because the Jews had this law of not killing or executing people during the days of unleavened bread, which is why it's mentioned, Herod, he throws Peter in jail. Verse 4, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. You see, Luke, Luke, he goes into more detail about Peter going to jail than James and his execution. He says four squads of soldiers. Verse 6, he's chained, he's bound to two soldiers. Verse 10 talks about the guards. And there'd be three gates from his cell to his escape into the city. And the last being a huge, big iron gate uh, guarding the city from the jail. You see, Peter, he was really in prison. That's why there's all these details here. It was a really hopeless situation for this guy, for Peter the Apostle. And his future seemed hopeless too. Herod, he was going to bring Peter out to the people. That's part of the execution process, just like what happened to Jesus. You see, these were dark days in the early church. After the great breakthroughs in chapter 10 and 11, we see a, blo a blood-hungry ruler on their heels. One apostle is dead, their lead apostle is on the road to death, and others have been tortured and killed. Well, let me ask you, how would you respond to this if you were in the first century? Maybe you'd be deflated. Maybe fear or anxiety would kick in. Maybe you'd lose some of your passion and your zeal. Maybe you'd stop going to church gatherings to distance yourself for a bit. Maybe you'd even ditch, leave the church, stop believing in all this Jesus stuff. And all of these are normal human responses, whether it's to seeing Christians suffer, experiencing persecution firsthand, 
or thinking about the potential of rejection as you live for Jesus, or seeing the progress of God's work hindered and declined. I have these feelings, and I think if you're honest, you felt like that at times too. Well, the early church felt like that in the first few verses of chapter 12, and it was real. It was a life-threatening persecution. And I think God, through Luke, he teaches us what to know, how to feel, and how to respond for us today in times like this. And it begins in this key transition verse in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You see, the people, they look beyond the situation, beyond the flesh and blood, beyond what was happening in front of them. They looked upward and forward to God, not wallowing in their misery, not ditching Jesus or the church. They prayed. They earnestly looked to God and sought the one who's sovereign, who's in control of all, the mighty, the all-powerful God. And as we keep going this morning, verse 1 to 5 was all Herod at work. He was imprisoning, killing, bringing in dark days to God's people. But in the rest of the passage, we see the one who's really in control step up. God, he takes the spotlight. In fact, God, if you look, he does everything in this story. He's at work. He's the one in control. And it's showing us today that while Herod, on the one hand, he thinks he's in charge, he looks like he's in charge, we know that God, he's really in control. And he's always working for our good and his glory. God indeed will prevail. And we see this in three sections from the rest of the chapter. And the first is in Peter's escape from verse 6, if you have a look. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. You see, it's the night before Peter was planned to go out before the people and his execution, and note that Peter, he's sleeping like a baby. He's pointing us to the peace that Peter had. Even though he's about to get killed the next day, Peter knew that in life or death, God's plans will prevail. And God's work begins here. The angel appears, wakes Peter up, chains fell off his hands, implied that God did it. And verse 8 keeps going. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. You see, God continues to work here. Peter puts on his daytime clothes. God can't help him with that. 
but they go past one guard, the next one, and now they get to a huge iron gate, the last door before freedom, and it opened by itself. All of this was God's hand, God supernaturally at work. And even Peter, he realizes this as he comes to his senses in verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You see, Peter, he thought he was dreaming. You see, even in the times of the early church, this miraculous work, this miraculous intervention of God, it wasn't a common day to day. This didn't happen every single day. Peter, he wasn't expecting it. But according to Luke, the writer of this eyewitness account, God did do this. God still has plans for Peter. And we see here that nothing can stand in the way of God's will and purpose. God will prevail. Now the story keeps going in verse 12. It says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. We saw a couple of verses before uh, that the believers were earnestly praying together for Peter. And once Peter is freed, he would have known where the believers usually gathered, and he makes his way there to share about all the great things that just happened. And we see this in verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. The early church believers, they were committed to prayer. We see this here in Acts 12. But even them, even these committed, earnest prayers, they were surprised to see Peter at all. They never expected or were even open to the idea of God actually answering their big prayers. And when Rhoda rejoices in what she saw, the prayers in the room, in the house, they downplay it. They go, you're crazy, you're just seeing his angel, a vision of him, but not really him. But Peter, he keeps knocking. And they finally saw Peter, and they were stunned. They were amazed, confused, speechless. Verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, "These tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And at the end of this first section of God prevailing, Peter, he declares to the believers, God did this. God, he brought Peter out of prison. And their big prayer to save Peter from prison and death, God, he heard it and he answered it, even though the people didn't believe it could happen. Peter asked the believers to pass a message on to James, who's the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And then Peter, at the end, he keeps going. He keeps moving, 
probably to stay out of the focus of Herod, showing, that, showing us today that being bold amidst persecution, God also wants us to be wise about our boldness too. Sometimes he wants us to stand and die like Stephen did, and sometimes he wants us to flee and hide like Peter did here. Boldness and wisdom together. And verse 18 shows the aftermath at the prison. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. He was really gone. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. See, Herod, he's really a tyrant, a bloodthirsty guy. He kills off the guards that, uh, that were involved in all this stuff. And, but we see here, while the chapter began with Herod's violent plans, we see here that the, the tables are beginning to turn. Herod, who thinks he's in charge, he's not in control anymore. And God is prevailing. He's in control. He's powerful. He's working. He's hearing and answering the prayers of the people. He's intervening for the good of his people, Peter, and the continued movement of the word of God. Now we come to the second section, showing us that God will prevail. And it feels like a scene from a sci-fi movie or a page out of the Old Testament. But to ground this next few verses in real-world history, uh, Josephus, he's a writer, a Jewish writer back in the first century, and in his writings called Antiquities of the Jews, he records the death of Herod in Caesarea in AD 44. And he says it was while Herod Agrippa was celebrating a games event, a public uh, sports event or something, and he entered the arena in a glittering silver garment, and the crowd in this arena addressed him like a god, and the king, he accepted, he lapped up this praise. And then Herod, he looks up, he saw an owl perched above, apparently that was bad luck or ill fortune, and then Herod immediately had violent internal pains, and after that he died after five days of illness. That's from Josephus. But Luke, he gives us his eyewitness account, which seems to align in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. We get some background info here that's found in Luke and not in Josephus. Uh, people from Tyre and Sidon, cities to the north of Israel, they were able to twist uh, an official of the king to have an audience with the king himself because Herod's anger was against the cities of Tyre and Sidon and they were stopping their supply of food. And the rest of the story goes like this. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, the glittering garment, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a god and not of a man. 
Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Luke's account is to the point. This tyrant, this opposer of God's church, this persecutor of believers, he accepts, he laps up praise as a God. And the true God, he dishes out judgment on Herod. You see, in Herod's death, the tables continue to turn. Herod thought he was in charge, but God, he's really in control. And God, he works for the good of his people and for his own glory. And we remember that while God dealt with evil once for all on the cross, as Jesus died and rose to defeat sin and death, and while God will get rid of all evil on that last day, in that final victory at the end of Revelation, we also know that there are many times in history, not all the time, not many times, probably more sometimes, that God works according to his will, where God judges evil in the here and now today, where God supernaturally or through ordinary means intervenes against evil and opposition. And we read that here in Acts 12. God does this here, where humanity's prideful arrogance is on display in Herod opposing God. And God, we see here, he works in swift judgment and power. He shows us today and the world that the end is not in doubt, that God will indeed prevail. You might ask, who rules? Who's in control? Who's powerful? Whose mission is unstoppable? Well, it's not Herod's, it's God's. It's his mission. It's his mission of the gospel going to the ends of the earth that will prevail. Now we come to the third, the final section, and it's about the word of God. And it's also another progress update that we see in Acts, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed the service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. You see, when you thought the mission of God was under threat, here we see the tables completely turned. And we see it here in two ways. First, people are still turning to Jesus The word of God is still doing its work. Conversions, believers, the church was increasing and multiplying. Not even Herod's violent hands could stop the spread of the gospel. And the second thing here is the gospel is continuing to move to the ends of the earth. You see the spotlight now moves to Barnabas and Saul. It moves to Antioch. It moves next week to Paul's missionary journey into uncharted waters for the gospel. And as we finish this chapter, Luke composes this passage intentionally. The structure here is intentional, contrasting the beginning and the end. We began with dark days, and now we end with the light of the gospel shining ahead. We began with Peter imprisoned, And now we end with Peter freed. 
We began with Herod's violence, and we end with Herod rotting. We began with God's good news under threat, and we end with God's word flourishing. We began with what could have been the end, the finishing of God's unstoppable mission. And we end with God's unstoppable mission continuing, going forward. And we began with Herod in charge, and we end with God in the driver's seat in control. You see, God will prevail. And we see this in Acts 12, this main point that while Herod thinks he's in charge, God, he's really the one in control, and he's working for our good and his glory. And that's what we see really all through Acts. God, he's working his will, his way, his plan, his unstoppable mission. And we learn week after week, passage after passage, that God's message will go forth. His good news will spread. The name of Jesus will go to the ends of the earth and God's Spirit will convict hearts of Jesus. And this morning, the question God gives to us, in light of that, to you, to me, and to us as a people, is will you be part of God's work? Will you be faithful to the task God has given you? Will you, will I, will we join in God's mission? knowing that God indeed will prevail. Maybe this morning uh, you're still finding out about God and Jesus. And as we've gone through this part of the Bible, you're intrigued or you're curious about who's this God who's in charge, who makes sure the good news of Jesus keeps going, that people will keep putting their trust in Jesus. Well, make sure you keep learning Keep scratching that itch of curiosity about this God who works, who's in control, who prevails. Keep finding out more about this good news of Jesus. And for those of you this morning who do follow Jesus, knowing that God will prevail, it leads us to two actions from Acts 12. And the first is that it drives us to prayer. Just like the early believers here, their response to dark times was to get on their knees and pray. You see, if God indeed will prevail, if he really is the sovereign, the all-powerful one, if he's the one who does all the work, then praying to God, talking to God, asking God to work should be our first port of call. And this truth stands true in all seasons for the word of God to go forward. But especially in dark times, in times of persecution, in those downer times when the work of the gospel seems hindered, when evil is rife and plenty, it should drive you and me individually to prayer, but us together, corporately, to pray just like the early believers did. The great Charles Spurgeon says, Prayer pulls the rope below, and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so lazily. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven, 
is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. And he also says about church prayer, prayer meetings are the throbbing machinery of the church. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, that church must pray. And if he not be there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. You see, knowing that God will prevail, it drives us to prayer. And it drives us to pray big, knowing that however God chooses to answer, whether yes, no, or something else, we know that God, he's powerful, he's able, his plan is bigger than ours, and he's got it in his hands. So let God's sovereignty and power draw you and drive you to prayer. May it drive us to corporate prayer too, whether it be our monthly prayer meetings on today, our pre-service prayer times at 8.30 or down the back, praying during community groups, or as you talk to people before or after church and something comes up that drives you to pray. Let knowing that God will prevail drive us to prayer. And the second and final thing from today is that it calls us to faithfulness in the midst of persecution. You see, knowing that God will prevail, it's like knowing an inside secret. God's got it. The future, he, it's in his hands. Your salvation is secure. And no matter what the scoreboard looks like in life, God's going to win. And this truth, it should fill us with confidence and assurance. It should drive us to faithful and confident living, a bold persevering, and a courageous endurance. And it should drive us here at all times, but especially in dark days, especially in times of persecution, times where you look around and you might feel deflated or discouraged. And I think that's the season that we're living in today. Not all-out persecution, but Christianity is unpopular. It doesn't seem relevant. It's marginalised. It's not like when most of you grew up where the church was respected and in the centre of society. Or maybe this morning you come to church and your season is something a bit different. Maybe for you work is busy. Family life is hectic, juggling a lot of things in your life. Your health might be going downhill. Your money might be a bit tight. And maybe this new season for you, it's discouraging. It's deflating. Well, I heard someone preaching on Acts, and he said about this, and I reworded it a little bit. There are not good or bad times to be faithful to Jesus. Just times. There are not good or bad times to be faithful to Jesus. Just times. You see, life, it has its ups and downs, seasons come and go, persecution gets worse and better, revivals happen and disappear, church life, your life has its ebbs and flows. But God shows us that the future, 
no matter what's happening, it's in his sovereign and powerful and all-loving hands. And this God, he calls us, he calls you to be faithful to him, to live for Jesus, to let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and minds, to grow in his word, to share the gospel, to stand up to guard the gospel, and to live as salt and light in this world. You see, they're not good and bad times to be faithful to Jesus, just times. And knowing that God will prevail, it calls us, it gives us confidence and assurance to be faithful in all of those seasons, but especially in times of trial. So as we finish off this morning, God indeed will prevail. So how will you and how will we live empowered by this profound truth and reality? Well, let's give thanks to God and let's pray that we would live in light of his greatness and goodness. Let's pray. Father God, you are indeed the sovereign, the all-powerful one. You indeed will prevail. You have prevailed through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And your mission today is to spread the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And it is an unstoppable mission. Lord, whether it be because of opposition, persecution, tyrants, or the works of the evil one, Lord, we pray that you would uh, do your good work in, through, and amidst all of that of sharing the good news of life in Jesus and causing people to be saved from death to life in his name. Lord God, we ask that you'd help us to join in this work too. Lord, help each of us to be empowered in light of this, to be bold in living for you in whatever season of life that we're in. Lord, give us wisdom to do so. Lord, drive us to be prayerful, depending on you for all things. And Lord, may you be stirring in our hearts and working your spirit in us to live in faithfulness to Christ alone. We pray these things in his name. Amen.